Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Nick Barsett, Senior Director of Technology Strategy at Red Hat. Nick joined Red Hat in June 2014 and now leads the team that helps decide the future of technologies, currently focusing on telco, edge, AI, and machine learning. In this interview, Nick discusses what it means to set edge strategy for Red Hat, where he's seeing the most edge-related demand right now, why the future of edge must be open, and the floating IP solution he's constructed in order to get reliable internet while he sails around the world on his boat. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Hackett, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Vapor.io, the leader in edge computing. We want to be your solution partner for the new internet. Learn more at vapor.io. And now, please enjoy this interview between Nick Barsett, Senior Director of Technology Strategy at Red Hat, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. Today, I'm here with Nick Barsett, Senior Director of Technology Strategy at Red Hat. We're going to talk about Nick's background in technology, the future of edge computing, and Nick's enviable life of setting edge strategy for Red Hat while he sails around the world on his boat. Hey, Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And you know, the, the most important question is, are you really on a boat and where are you on a boat? Yes, I'm really on a boat. And if you listen carefully, you might hear a few waves. There's a little bit of wind today. I'm uh, in Key West at the moment. We've been here for a couple of weeks now. Really enjoyable. That's excellent. Do you mostly stay on the coast of the United States or is it really all over the world? So far, we've been uh, going as far as the Bahamas, but mostly the east coast of the U.S. A bit more convenient for work. You're truly on the edge, which I think is very appropriate for the show. How, how do you get internet? So I usually say I have a floating IP. Basically, I have uh, four contracts with four different providers that gives me unlimited 4G, and I load balance between them. That's the best solution I have to prevent uh, outages. So you have you have a technology solution that load balances across four different 4G signals? Yeah, basically daisy, daisy chainings, uh, multiple uh, providers, yeah. So I'm just waiting for Starlink to offer something that works uh, on a moving vehicle. Yeah, until Starlink is here, I think it's a great solution. So how did you even get started in technology? Oh, I started uh, when I was eight, I think, building uh, little boards, electronic boards, and then somebody offered me a TI-57, so I learned the very basics of programmation with it, got really into it, bought a TRS-80, yeah, that dates, that old, um, <laughs> and uh, never left the field. I mean, I... I've always had four passions. One of them is computing, sailing, photography, human studies in general. I decided that computing was the one that was going to pay for the bills and have fun at the same time. Well, it's nice. And it allows you to, allows you to float around the world. And your job as a, as a technology strategist, I'm sure, allows you to use the human element quite well. So let's talk about edge computing and let's start broadly. So how did you even get involved in edge? A conversation with Matt Hicks, uh, who leads our uh, engineering group. He told me, hey, uh, I'm hearing more and more about Edge. Uh, we have no clue what it is. Can you help us investigate that field? That was almost three years ago now. So with uh, one of my colleagues that has now left Red Hat, we started uh, investing, investigating that field a little bit later, provided a, a little report, and we were asked to create what we call an ILT, an 
initiative leadership team within Red Hat. So basically, we knew that Edge was going to meet our products all across our product range. And we needed to influence the roadmap of multiple products. So we needed a structure that would be across all of our business units to move forward in reasonably synchronized fashion. And that's what we've been doing for the past two years. Yeah, so I think we came into Edge around the same time, and I remember it being very frothy. I remember, I mean, in fact, one, one of the most popular questions to ask people was, what is your definition of Edge? Which I don't do anymore, because I think we finally concluded that it, it changes, right? I mean, for you, the Edge is your boat. <laughs> but I think that one of the things that's happened recently is your definition of Edge actually does matter. And so I'm interested in if you've had an evolution of your understanding of Edge and if there's any insight you can offer the audience in terms of how you think about it now compared to how you may have thought about it at the beginning. So it's easy to give a, a definition of Edge that covers all the use cases. When you just take a high-level stance and say Edge is about putting the processing power closer to where the data is being used or generated. That's what you'll find on Wikipedia. And I find this definition absolutely fine. Sure. The problem is when you start to want to describe what you're doing at the edge. And here, more recently, I've heard from Forrester interesting definition, an interesting taxonomy of the edges. There is an edge that satisfies the enterprise's need. There is an edge that satisfies the customer's needs. There is uh, an edge that satisfies the operations of a, a structure. And there is an edge that is all about how do I provide access to the network. So these four edges seem to be more interesting and allow us to better understand what we are talking about when we talk about a customer use case. And sometimes a given customer will mix two or three of these edges in his needs. It's not necessarily all about doing one thing, but it can be about doing multiple things that uh, cross over. So yeah, edges, it's a little bit uh, as if I was saying uh, 20 years ago, I'm in computing you know, or in cloud computing 10 years ago or so let's come back to that, because I think that's a really interesting element of the discussion that I'd like to introduce into this. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about your role at Red Hat. What is a director of strategy? What is it that you do at Red Hat? That's uh, an interesting question. It took me quite a while to figure it out, because this position didn't exist. It was created two years ago as I was transitioning away of my role leading the OpenStack team. Basically, what I end up doing is put people in relation within the various section of the company to think together on how to solve a problem that is bigger than any single product. I spend time with customers to listen to what they need that we don't have. And I try to distill that information internally to make sure that we have the same understanding of what, what is the job to be done. What do we need to solve today? And I try to coordinate people in their activity you know, towards solving those problems. Can you give us an example of an example of one of these engagements that you put together and what it yielded? So Edge is a perfect example. As the question, what is Edge? Can you tell us? I had to read. I had to go and meet with a few customers that were tagged as, oh, these are Edge users and talk with them. And then I had to restitute that information that I learned to the management team, who then tasked me to try to coordinate our activity around Edge internally. 
What's really interesting in that job, from uh, my perspective, is the fact that I have to be listening a lot better than I've ever been, a lot better than any single PM, because when we are talking about a new field of interest, what people are saying is still not yet normalized. We still have problems with definitions. We still have problems of, are we talking about this layer or that layer? And there, there is a lot of confusion. You know, if I take the average person in the IT field and ask them, what is the edge? The answer is generally linked to mobile phone and 5G. And while these are important components that can constitute an edge strategy, they are not the beginning nor the end of it. So I think it's super interesting to be in these early phases and try to bring more clarity in the fog in which we are uh, moving. And that can be either be really exciting or infuriating. It's been an interesting journey for me as well. Mo- mostly exciting, mostly exciting. I like sort of sorting through that and identifying things that people have in common that may be using different words for or different ways to explain things so that different camps can understand it. It's really an interesting role you've created for yourself. So let's go back to the Forrester definitions and let's unpack one or two of them. So you mentioned enterprise. And if I understood the description correctly, there is an edge that enterprises will derive value from, or there may be more than one edge. So how does that way of looking at it start to provide insight and clarity? So for a company like Red Hat, which naturally focuses mostly on the infrastructure, it allows us to look at it from a step higher, which is the application. And when we say enterprise, we are not qualifying anymore the hardware that is running at the edge. We are talking about what is happening with the data. And you have a few patterns in how the data is being used. And when you're looking at the enterprise edge, generally the data flows in and out of the edge towards a central location, which can be a cloud, which can be a private data center. But it is still a very centralized computing architecture with compute resources that are placed nearby the user to ensure quality of service, to ensure response time, to ensure what's happening if the connection to the internet fails. It's something to improve on uh, something that could live without the edge. And if you take the second definition, the definition of the operations edge, here you are much more talking about a closed loop. You take data, you process it, and you do something with it locally. What is an operations, what is an example of a use case in operations? A factory. Okay. You uh, are deploying a new system that will improve quality assurance in the factory, and your system is going to... Right. Or I just got my ass kicked by COVID, and I need to roboticize. My 10-year robotics plan is now a three-year robotics plan. And in that case, when you're talking about closed loops, you have fractions of a second to make decisions... And they need to be trustable, but the key point is the production. It's not how you're going to be reporting to your central location. Central location reporting always exists, but it's not anymore at the core of the activity. Yeah, that's interesting. So you start to identify these patterns, as you mentioned, and I can imagine what the pattern is for the access network piece, which I think was one of the one of the four. So one of the things you mentioned that surprised me, and I'm interested in you defining it for me, you you mentioned that Red Hat is an infrastructure company. And when I think of infrastructure, I think of like fiber in the ground. I think of like towers and radios and things like that. So explain to me how you think of Red Hat as an infrastructure company. Okay, that's interesting because, again, that's a semantic clash that we have here. 
when we say that, we mean that we deliver software that help people build infrastructures. Generally, we, we are mentioning servers, mm. we are mentioning networks, we are mentioning connecting applications together or building storage. For us, when we say infrastructure, that's a combination of what do you need to build a, a computing infrastructure in terms of software. Right. But what's really interesting about that is as you get into, let's say, less tolerant edge applications, edge applications that are more demanding on the infrastructure, and we'll just put, put that in quotes for a second, um, it would seem to me that as a software company, you would need to become much more opinionated about the physical infrastructure available, the kind of network you have available, the sort of SLAs it can deliver, the kind of hardware that you have available, whether it's got a smart NIC or a GPU or something like that. Can you talk to me from a software perspective about how you view the physical infrastructure and how you translate an application's demands into software that then eventually has to be implemented on somebody's hardware? And how do you get it there and ensure that it's going to do the right thing for you? So you've described the uh, hammer and the sledge, and we are right in the middle. So basically, every time an application needs to use a GPU, it needs to be exposed to it as a, an interface. And that's the role of our software to make this GPU available to the software. So we make the translation from physical to virtual, if you want. And we do that for disk, we do that for GPUs, we do that for memory. That's the role of an operating system. And nowadays, that's the role of infrastructure software such as Kubernetes to present virtualization uh, of those in a way that is even more abstracted so that multiple people can share the same physical hardware. How do you view the relationship between hardware that is on-premises and owned by the customer, hardware that's on-premises, but maybe owned by, well, maybe managed by Amazon or Microsoft's cloud or the equivalent, hardware that might be in a nearby data center. I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, whether it's a, an outpost box at a Verizon, well, Wavelength, you know, an Amazon server at Verizon is very different than a Dell box that I bought that I stuck in a micro data center in the parking lot of my factory. How, how do you homogenize all that or don't you? What, what, is, what is your view of that? So our view is that our role is to make those differences almost invisible to the application user, the application developer, and as much as possible to the operator of the edge. So that, that's really where our open hybrid cloud vision, which is now extended to go all the way to the edge, provides a, a tremendous di difference. So having an open source basis enables us to ensure that what we're doing is not unique and our customer are not locked in. It also allows us to collaborate with hundreds of partners knowing exactly what we're talking about because the code is shared. The hybrid part of it is all about allowing the same interfaces to be presented to the developer while you're deploying the infrastructure software on vastly different hardware. So sometimes it's on a cloud infrastructure, sometimes it's on physical hardware, sometimes it's on physical hardware that uh, the customer owns, sometimes it isn't. And all of this should be made completely invisible to those users. When you're talking with an API such as the Kubernetes API, you are generally completely abstracted. And we are now getting use of this abstraction in the cloud when you deploy your Kubernetes environment, you suddenly gain that capability to be completely protected from the differences from one cloud to the other. 
applying it to the edge is our new challenge, what we're doing at the moment. It starts by ensuring that we work with multiple hardware vendor, with multiple processor architectures. But it also goes into ensuring that what we have built together with hyperscalers on their platform to enable our offering on AWS or on Azure or on Google Cloud can be reproduced on their quite similar offering, but that are relocated at the uh, customer. And if we can achieve that, then we offer this real ability to be uh, seeing all of it as an open hybrid cloud, including the Yeah, that's really interesting. So do you imagine a world in the future where as an application developer that's building an edge application, but maybe I'm not at the edge, I'm on a boat and I'm building an edge application, it needs to run somewhere else on hardware that I don't ever get to touch. And it might be owned by the customer, it might be owned by... Amazon, or it might be owned by the telco or so on. Do I supply a manifest or you know, a, a, a description of what I need? Like if I have a data sovereignty requirement, I need to be within this geofence. I need to have this kind of latency. I need to have this kind of resilience. I can tolerate this much jitter. You know, I need this kind of performance from a GPU, CPU, and so on. And then the infrastructure software figures out where to run that given the available resources or, you know, puts out an error that says you can't do it? Or like, what's the what's the long-term vision of this and how close are we to it? So uh, I think we are quite far away from it. Right now, what infrastructure software does in terms of scheduling is pretty good at scheduling within a given locality and using or exposing the resources available there. Before we can dynamically map a topology of various data center and redirect things to serve the best route, I think we will have moved on to a new, to a new uh, to another problem. Or the network will have evolved so much that we don't care that much anymore about where are things. Either of these two things will happen before we, we solve this too complex of a problem to be sold and be financially viable at the end. Right now, the problem that we see with our customers are much simpler. It's how do I deploy my new infrastructure in my factory and what are the minimum requirements, what are the specs for the machine we are going to place there? What's the difference between deploying an application on my factory floor and traditional on-prem workload? What makes that edge? The main difference is that generally the location has not been designed to host uh, computing. So you have all kinds of constraints depending on where you are. It can be space constraints, power constraints, internet access constraint. Sometimes you only have intermittent access to the internet. This is the big difference. And you need to be right-sizing this new infrastructure that you're going to be deploying because if you miss the amount of RAM or the amount of CPU, the cost of deployment is generally much higher than the cost of the hardware itself. So you don't want to have to redeploy multiple times this edge. It's a little simpler if you're renting an edge location to a provider, because in that case, generally the provider has more flexibility than you do because the provider is factorizing. And therefore, if you need one more server, you can modify the contract. But if you're talking about the on-premise edge owned by the customer, or in other cases where you're renting machines that are sent somewhere, 
that's a crucial element, making sure that your architecture matches the software requirement that you're going to deploy. Yeah, so it, it seems that, at least in the near term, an application developer that's building on top of Red Hat infrastructure software or anybody else's infrastructure software probably still needs to have some visibility into the hardware that's available. Now, you may abstract it so that the programming model is the same. I can deliver a Docker image and be confident that's going to run. And when it fails, it'll automatically restart and things like that. That these, But I still, if I require a GPU... I have to have confidence that there's going to be a GPU at the other end. And it's probably because I put it there or my customer put it there. Is that, is, am I hearing that correctly? Absolutely. You cannot abstract it, uh, the presence of a GPU. It needs to be there somewhere physically. Now you have strategies. If you already have deployed hardware, you can offload some of uh, the work that is to be done and you can use the regular CPU where GPU would go a lot faster, but maybe the flow of data that you have is not that big. But clearly, when we are building edge strategy with a customer, we always start from what are the applications that he plans to deploy before we can even start sizing what type of hardware is going to be placed there. Yeah. And in terms of the software that Red Hat delivers to your customers, who are your customers and what are they looking for at the edge? So our customers are across all verticals. Red Hat works with all of the top 500 company and much, much more than this. Where we see a lot of edge-related demand right now are in the top three, where we could name first Telco. They are busy deploying 5G, which requires an, an edge infrastructure for it to be performant. Then automotive, Lots of evolution are happening in the uh, auto industry, and the car is the furthest component in the edge for them, but they also need to work on their factories and things like that. And then the general industrial environments, whether it's oil and gas or standard factories, are really, really keen on improving their processes by deploying edge infrastructure. But that doesn't stop here. We see opportunities happening in retail, in healthcare, in uh, public sector. And when I say public sector, that goes from uh, smart city to how do I build my next generation of uh, weapon def defense system? Or how do I go install a, a base onto the moon? Uh, it really, really varied. <laughs> yeah, when will OpenStack be on the moon? That's what I want to know. Uh, OpenStack, I, I don't think at this point. OpenShift, very likely. It's probably been in the, in the atmosphere. But uh, maybe not all the way to the moon. Yeah, we've got Kubernetes uh, OpenShift on the ISS that was launched three weeks ago. So that's a very interesting first step. And here it's a typical edge use case. Yeah. How do I avoid having to send gigabytes of data back to Earth for analysis? Yeah, actually, that's the one definition I haven't heard. It's the outer shell of my satellite. <laughs> I got the bumper of my car once when I asked, what is the edge? But not the outer shell of my satellite. So... Let's look at a couple of use cases. So let's talk about the, the telco use case, which I think is really interesting. And I'm seeing the same thing in the market. There's a lot of demand for the virtualization of the network, which requires infrastructure software and a lot of the things that we think of cloud not being centralized, but being out in the field, <laughs> out in the landscape. What parts of the telco 
I don't just want to say the network. I mean, the, the I mean, obviously there's the backend office and the billing and let's let's that's traditional enterprise workloads. But in terms of the virtualization of the actual network and maybe the packet core, can you talk to me about a deployment that's using Red Hat software and how that works and what challenges you saw and how you had to adapt OpenShift to accommodate that? Yeah. So starting five years ago, we started uh, working with Telco on building OpenStack to meet their requirement to deploy their DNS. And when we did that, we were really focused at the core of the network. Because in, in any case, all the, the endpoints, uh, an IP connection that you would establish on your phone would be translated into uh, an IP packet that would go on the internet only at uh, a single location for uh, a provider. So everything was super centralized. So the core was really our, our focus. And when we did that, we realized that there were a lot of constraints that you needed to put in place to support those VNFs, uh, things like enabling uh, all kinds of quality assurance in how we are going to be delivering resources to a given application, how we are going to segment a computer so that multiple things can happen at the same time without uh, ever disturbing each other. And that was a very interesting uh, learning. So we, we learned that on OpenStack. The first thing we started doing in the 5G deployment was move all this knowledge to Kubernetes because it was obvious that containerization allowed a lot more efficiencies than just virtual machines. So we had to re-implement everything that we learned on OpenStack so that it would work on OpenShift. And that was still at the beginning, focused on the core. And then, as you certainly know, when you deploy 5G, in order to get lower latency, you need to deploy hardware closer to the antennas. And where we only had one level of delegation between the core and the antenna in the 4G model, there is now two, even three layers of delegation that you can introduce when you deploy a 5G network. And there suddenly you have new sets of requirements because the difference of your control plane using uh, five or six CPUs in the core doesn't make a big deal because a single control plane is going to be controlling tens, hundreds, thousands of servers. But when you're talking about an edge location, a difference of one or two CPU can make a, a big difference. And you also have requirements such as enabling new hardware components like FPGAs or GPUs, ensuring that your real-time operating system does deliver the predictability it is supposed to. And that's what we are doing right now with our customer is finalizing those stacks that goes as close as possible to the antenna. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So I got my start building video games and embedded systems. And back in the day, I mean, you know, because you owned a TRS-80 and all that, like discrete timing was how you got anything done. You counted cycles to change colors on the screen. And as the world has moved towards the cloud and the internet, you know, there's this really big gap between the cloud and internet developers where the model is best effort. It works most of the time. Sometimes it'll take longer, sometimes it won't. So if my Facebook app doesn't reload my feed for two seconds every two weeks, and but most of the time it's fast enough, that's fine with me. But when you're running a telco network or an autonomous drone or a factory robot, you don't have that luxury. Best effort doesn't count. Like you have to have discrete, deterministic, reliable. And so can you tell me how those two worlds 
are meeting, how they're compromising, and where the learning exchange is happening. There are two types of way of defining the deterministic uh, events and uh, how you how you're going to be constrained to solve for something. The first one is latency, the time it takes to from I am asking a question to I get the reply. This latency is what you see when you're talking about uh, drone control or uh, things like that. And here, what you have to ensure is that you have enough capacity to handle your peak of number of requests so that you're always below a certain threshold. You know that your machine can process 50 requests uh, per millisecond. Well, you do simple math and you add enough machine to do uh, up to 500 if that's your capacity planning for a given location. That's fairly easy to do because systems like this, it's just a matter of right-sizing it. However, when it becomes really complex from our perspective, where we translate hardware to, to virtual, is every time we have to do analog to digital transformation. Example of this is I'm transforming a radio signal into a string of bits on my computer, or I am watching for some event and I need to make sure that I'm here to listen when it occurs and I need to do it at the right frequency. In fact, it's every time we have to fight with the Fourier law that we have to engineer computers that are super predictable on when they are doing something. And people think that when we say real-time computing, we mean real fast computing. No, actually, we slow things down to ensure the things happen at the right beat. Yeah, deterministic is probably a better word, but very few people understand what that means. But yes, I, I definitely get what you mean. Predictable, reliable, consistent is what you need. Exactly. Whereas the internet is like, let's just, you know, the bits can arrive in any order and hopefully it works. <laughs> That's it. So every time you do this conversion from uh, analog to digital, either you can do a sampling that is so fast that you don't care about missing a beat and you have to be many times faster than what's happening in, in real life, or you need to be on beat. It's like in a group, if you are not playing on the same beat as the rest of the group, you're going to mess it up and we can do that. So the tolerance there are really, really key and fine tuning software for a particular piece of hardware is the difficulty every time we have to deal with this. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So what about resilience? I mean, because servers fail, fiber gets cut, radios go down, power goes out, backup batteries drain. Is there anything different about providing resilience in a deterministic system that you've had to do from a Red Hat perspective? Not that much. Resilience is always the same and becomes more problematic as you add to your requirements. If you have a system that needs to be 99% of the time available, that's really easy to set up. If you need something that is uh, available at 99.999, five nines, that becomes really problematic because we are talking about hours of uh, just a few hours of outage uh, during a full year. And it's really complex to design such a system. It requires understanding not only what's happening within a given application, but within the entire environment in order to be able to predict and correct as soon as possible, even before they arrive. 
in order to meet these types of requirements. So that's where the difficulty lies. Edge computing hasn't changed anything to this, except that you have more constraint. You have less space, you have less power. So sometimes when people tell me I only have room for one server and I want that to be super available, five nines. There is no solution for this. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what I thought you were going to say. This is interesting, and, I, and maybe you, you, this is implied because you think this world coming from the software world. But what I thought you might say is we're moving from a world of fault tolerance through mechanical redundancy to a world of high availability through software. Because I'm certainly seeing that trend, and obviously with systems like Kubernetes, like high availability is built in. It's part of it. and Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't you, let me talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. But that's true when you're talking at the cloud computing level, where the number of computer is uh, n greater than three, or equal or greater than three, then you can start applying all kinds of software to make that completely transparent to the software developer or very close to transparent to the software developer and ensure high availability through software. But when you are talking about edge computing, where when people can deploy three server, you're super happy. I mean, it's uh, like you have a party because it's not every day that uh, three server can be hosted uh, in every store uh, of a given company. Sometimes two is going to be their maximum. And that's where you can do everything you want with your software. If you don't have a minimum of three server, we don't know how to provide very high availability. There are physical limits to what software can do. Yeah, that's a really, that's an interesting distinction on that spectrum of, you know, core to edge, which is at the point where you've got a system where you can implement high availability for resilience. And at some point, yes, it's just not practical. You've got one CPU, one server on the windmill or, or whatever it is, and you just have to make that as reliable as you can possibly make it. So that means uh, allowing for other strategies to occur, like for uh, 5G networks. What the operators do is they try to never rely on a single antenna to serve a given location so that they have overlapping between their different antennas. And if one fails, the other one has a little bit of extra capacity to take over the traffic that was handled with the antennas that failed. There is other strategies like, okay, I cannot do any mean of high availability on a given site. However, if this site disappears for a reason or another, I'd rather make sure I know about its state so that I can replace it with another. So you implement disaster recovery scenario uh, between multiple sites. Or you design your software to be completely stateless, which allows for a lot more flexibility in switching from one site to, to another. But you have to think about it because suddenly your physical environment is coming with lots of constraints and you don't want the software meaning the application to have to worry about it, but you want the infrastructure to enable uh, for the solution. And that's based on um, intelligent and creative thinking at the time where you're designing this uh, edge infrastructure. Yeah, some really interesting innovation is going to happen there. That, thank you for pointing that out. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. So when I think of Red Hat, I think of the gold standard of commercialized open source software. And you've said the future of edge computing will absolutely be open. Can you tell me what that means, what the role of open and open software will mean in edge computing and what you're seeing and where there are opportunities or where there are some danger signs? 
I believe I, I touched on that uh, when I uh, gave a definition of open hybrid cloud, including the edge. But let me try to refine that a bit. So for me, the problem for a given customer is that there is a big risk that the choices he make early on on his edge strategy will add to an already very big set of constraints. Because if I choose to go with a given vendor that has a superb vertical integration from the cloud to the edge, the day I add another edge use case, which is not covered appropriately with that vendor, I am at risk to have to redeploy everything in another way. For me, the openness that we have enables two things. The first thing is ensuring that the same infrastructure software works the same way across multiple vendors so that you can easily add another vendor. Let, let me take a, a more concrete example. I have decided to deploy my, uh, my solution using hosted edge equipment. And for my first, for example, a vendor that has multiple small data center all across the country, and based on my analysis, all, let's say I'm a retail company, all of my store are close enough to one of those locations. So that solves my problem completely, and I'm going to work with this company because I don't have any uh, other needs. Next year, suddenly my company decides to open a series of store in Europe. And I realized that my edge vendor that was available all over the place in the US is not available in Europe. What do I do? Do I start from scratch? Or do I have something that abstracts me from the vendor I've chosen and enables me to deploy it elsewhere? So that's the first part. The second part is even with a vendor that has availability across a software vendor that has availability across multiple hardware vendor, there are risks that we decide to discontinue a given product line and put people in the same amount of trouble. However, when you're dealing with open source software, there is never a case where a single company offers that piece of software. There are generally multiple options. And that's another way of protecting you from having to redo everything from scratch. So that's why I think that the edge cannot be fruitful, cannot bring maximum benefits without being open. Because if you are not protected against these two risks, you're going to have a very, very costly edge. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I understand that. What about the aspect of open source software in particular, where the idea is that an industry, a new industry like edge computing, can accelerate itself by having the stakeholders agree on a common substrate that they all contribute to to advance its velocities. Maybe Kubernetes is a good example of this, where it would be ridiculous for someone to create a new container orchestration system at this point, when you've got one that's, you know, <laughs> the top engineers in the world have been banging on and will continue banging on refining. So do you see other projects? And if you can name specific projects, I'd be interested, just that you have a particular interest in that you think are because of this kind of open source collaboration, are accelerating or advancing that common substrate for edge computing or not? All the projects regarding uh, building a CI-CD pipeline, GitOps operation, automation, whether it's in the network or in the software, 
all of these components are absolutely fundamental to building these, your edge. And you know, Kubernetes is a small part of that problem. And there are areas where we see needs, where we don't see yet a project matching it, and where we are investing in the research necessary to solve it. Like, how do I deal with a multiple vendor hardware lifecycle? There are plenty of solutions to control a specific type of hardware, but when you start missing hardware vendor, managing the hardware lifecycle is a nightmare. Even OpenShift, we often say OpenShift is Kubernetes, that's true, but OpenShift is a lot more than just Kubernetes. It's Kubernetes plus service mesh, plus CI-CD tools, plus many others. So I think that the, the question is, how do you select the right projects so that they are not maintained by a single vendor? And how do you ensure that you have a capacity to maintain uh, those projects over time, whether it's by contracting with someone else, like Red Hat, or by ensuring that you have the team to do so for yourself. And that's what open source is about. It's making sure you're not doing things by yourself because we can go so much faster, and we've proven that now multiple times, than uh, regular software vendors, that it would be stupid to be approaching the problem any other way. Yeah, it's a really interesting time to be alive from a software perspective. I completely agree. I mean, I grew up in the world where the last thing you thought of doing was letting someone look at your source code. <laughs> now it's kind of the first thing. It's like, which parts are we going to open source? It's really interesting. So let's let's just wrap up a little. Um, what do you see as the biggest near-term challenges facing edge computing? Oh, there are so many. I would say right now, the biggest challenge is for the hardware vendor and the software vendor to start normalizing what they're doing. Because right now, when we're talking about the single board computers, you have as many boot systems that there are vendors to deal with these environments. Um, you have as many message queues as you have vendors. You have... So trying to start normalizing this, this has already started but it's going to take quite a while for uh, it to reach every vertical industry. Is any of that normalization organized? Is there any group doing doing that? There are multiples. And generally, they are um, by verticals. And there is now some uh, effort that are cross-pollinating across industries. But it's still quite interesting that even two years into it, I can get into a customer and hear about a new way to for message to be sent from A to B. I don't know if you have the same experience, but um, it seemed that we've been really, really good at making multiple VHS and multiple Betamacs into spaces before the computing world started looking into it and say, hey, that's weird. We need to simplify that. Yeah, it seems like innovation and normalization are a high tension, have a high tension relationship, and figuring out how to you know align those is really the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's let's look out into the future. Let's look, you know, 18 to 24 months. Where do you think we're going to be? What's going to be the most interesting thing happening in Edge, do you think? So on one side, you have the evolution of networking. We were talking about it regarding my boat, but uh, this evolution that is being brought by 5G deployments, by Starlink or uh, multiple uh, space-based uh, networking, is going to change a, a lot of things on how we approach the networking uh, problem. 
you know, I was telling you I have multiple providers using 4G today to ensure high availability. The high availability of network is going to become a, a problem of the past because of this. And it's if we look uh, at 20 years from now, we even have hope to have instantaneous communication at any point of space uh, through, uh, as, as in quantum. We could hope that 20 years from now, we could have instantaneous communication from any point to any point. Instantaneous as in, as in quantum or instantaneous as in speed of light? Before that, in the, in the time frame you were looking, uh, looking at, just 5G and satellite-based communication are going to revolutionize our way to design because we'll have so many offering that will necessarily become cheap enough that we'll be able to have two or three regardless of the use case. So that's something that really looking forward to, not only because I live on a boat, but because of the requirement I see uh, at my customer. The other uh, evolution that is really interesting is how we are using processing power in more specialized units. Like smart NICs and FPGAs and things like that? Yes, okay. that's, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, the fact that you have DPUs available in smart NICs and we can use those to do things in parallel of what the main CPU is doing. And I believe that this specialization of resources is going to uh, enable a new generation of software that provides for solving problem quicker and much cheaper than we were ever before. We've seen that revolution happen through GPUs, but we are only at the beginning of this revolution. And it's going to go through all kinds of things and all kinds of discoveries. So I, I don't know where is the next major breakthrough. You mentioned earlier in the interview that one of the biggest challenges you're confronting is the gap between analog to digital. I'm wondering if the specialized processors, SmartNICs and FPGAs, things like that, are starting a potential path to solving a great deal of that challenge. Do you see that? I don't know if it's going to solve it completely, but I know we've already built a proof of concept with NVIDIA where we are using GPU to do that conversion. Hmm. That's already starting to happen. Now, does it prevent us from requiring uh, real-time kernels in order to deal with that signal? I'm not sure yet. Hmm. I've not been involved too close. Excellent question, and I'll talk with it with my colleague Frank that uh, built that together. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for joining us from Key West today. And uh, really appreciate you joining the show and, and sharing your insight with our audience. Um, if people want to get a hold of you online, how can they find you? It's quite easy. I am named Nijaba on almost uh, all uh, social media platform, N-I-G-A-B-A, which stands for Nicholas James Marset, which is my first name. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much. And uh, I'm excited to see uh, more Red Hat innovations in the space. Thank you very much, Matt. It was really a pleasure talking with you today. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven, Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Over the Edge is brought to you by Vapor.io, the leader in edge computing. We want to be your solution partner for the new internet. Our edge co-location, edge networking, and edge exchange is built atop the world's fastest growing edge platform, the Kinetic Edge. 
Whether you're a telco looking to deploy 5G, a cloud provider seeking the fastest path to edge AI, or a network operator looking to exchange traffic in edge locations, Vapor.io is your solution partner for the new internet. Learn more at vapor.io.